Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland and welcome one and all. Tonight, we're going to explain who Lee Harvey Oswald was. We're going to unpack everything about Lee Harvey Oswald and maybe make a little bit more sense of who this character was, the role he played and didn't play in the assassination. So get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of choice going. It's a chilly one out there tonight. The snow's coming down. It's like a minus thousand in Kingston tonight. <laughs> get by the fireplace, pull a comforter way up, get another comforter, put the socks on, you know, the whole deal. Get a beverage of choice happening, a little bit of coffee, a little bit of tea, whatever makes you comfy. Take this time for yourself to relax. Lee Harvey Oswald, what a story behind this guy. Now, just a brief overview of Lee Harvey Oswald. He was accused of being the purported assassin of JFK, November 22nd, 1963. So I'm going to read this from my book, Lee Harvey Oswald Explained. Lee Harvey Oswald, October 18th, 1939, passed away November 24th, 1963, is the purported assassin of John F. Kennedy. Oswald was raised by a single mom, Marguerite, and had a quote-unquote troubled childhood. On one occasion, he was admitted to a juvenile home and was assessed by a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Renatus Hartogs, who just happened, folks, to be working on mind control techniques for guess who? The CIA. We'll get into that some more at the end. Yeah, here he is working on MK Ultra, and who's he assessing? None other than Lee Harvey Oswald. So at the age of 17, Oswald entered the Marine Corps, and he was stationed at a place called Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan. Now, Atsugi Air Force Base is where U-2 spy plane flights would originate. It was the U-2's task to fly over the Soviet Union to secretly photograph Soviet military movements. Now, it is believed that this was his introduction to the secret world of U.S. intelligence. Oswald was given Russian language tests by the U.S. military, which seemed strange as he'd have no use for the Russian language in his current role in the Marines. Unless, of course, he was going to go undercover to Russia. As if on cue, Oswald left the Marines very suddenly and defected to Russia. At the American embassy before officially entering Russia, Oswald boasts that he's going to tell the Soviet Union all his top secret information from the Marines. In other words, he's going to tell the Soviets all about the spy flights and everything else. All this at the American embassy. They must have been thrilled. It is well worth noting that the Office of Naval Intelligence, the ONI, had a program at this very time where they would recruit young men in their 20s. On the surface, they all seemed to be disenchanted with America, malcontents, and all with communist tendencies. The ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, then have them defect to Eastern Europe or directly into the Soviet Union. After a year or so, 
The ONI would bring them back, some married, as Oswald did, to wives of the countries they were in. And true to form, Oswald returned from Russia with his wife, Marina, and a baby daughter. But instead of being arrested as a traitor, he's allowed back into the country without reprimand. Again, it is commonly believed this was because of two reasons. The first, U.S. intelligence wanted any and all the intel he had gathered and brought back from Russia. Second reason, U.S. intelligence was going to use Oswald as a dangle. Now, folks, think of a dangle as a worm or bait on a fish hook, waiting for someone to take hold and bite it, get hooked onto it. U.S. intelligence would then wait and see if the Soviet intelligence services would try to contact Oswald to spy for them on the U.S. If that were to happen, then the U.S. intelligence service could then feed false information back to the Soviets through Oswald. Sheep dipping Levy Harvey Oswald. It's also my belief that now that Oswald was back in the States, U.S. intel was once again going to engage Oswald in an attempt to send him into the heart of Castro's Cuba on a similar mission as he had successfully done in Russia. This would mean setting up Oswald's character and actions to resemble that of a pro-Fidel Castro Cuban revolutionist activist slash anti-American capitalist. This process is called sheep dipping and is commonly used in intel circles. It comes from actually dipping a live sheep in a chemical solution that kills bugs nested into their wool. So the analogy is that sheep dipping an intel asset, perhaps like Oswald, gets rid of who the person really is and makes it easier for a fake alternate character to emerge to the public. And that is exactly what we can see taking place. In October 1962, Oswald, upon returning from the Soviet Union, miraculously manages to get a job at Jagger's Child Stovall Company in Dallas, Texas. Now, this is a high-tech company, folks, that examines the very same top-secret U-2 spy photos mentioned above. So, these planes would take off from Japan, Atsugi, Japan, fly over the Soviet Union, fly over the military bases to keep an eye on where the movement of troops are, the movement of tanks, missile bases, etc. Take those photos, they would come back, top secret, get wrapped up at Itsugi, shipped over to the United States to Jagger's Child Stovall, where they would be unpacked and they would be examined. So here's, you've got a defector, Lee Harvey Oswald, that's just come back from the Soviet Union. He's denounced his American citizenship. He's told the American embassy, he's boasted to them that, I'm going to tell all the secrets I have about Atsugi and the U-2 spy planes to the Russians. So he comes back and he's looking for work. And all of a sudden, he gets a job at Jagger's Childs Stovall. Do we see a problem here? <laughs> or is it just me? Hello? This guy's a security risk, and he's getting a job at a top-secret place that examines spy photos. Okay, I continue. 
This is a high-tech photographic company that examines the very same top-secret U2 spy photos mentioned above. With such a strategically placed job, it is, in my opinion, hoped that the Soviets might reach out to him at this juncture to spy for them. It is worth noting that Oswald gets the job within days before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can you imagine that? He gets this job a week later or just a few days later, the Cuban Missile Crisis begins. And what's the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, a U-2 plane, they used them for spy planes before they had satellites, flew over Cuba, took pictures, saying it was 30 or 40,000 feet above Cuba, spotted some Cuban installations, and those Cuban installations contained Soviet nuclear missiles. So throw this into the mix. Here's Oswald just starting a few days before, and all of a sudden, top secret pictures for the Cuban Missile Crisis. Go buy them. Hello? Are we seeing a problem? This is a guy, right, security risk. He just came back from the Soviet Union, denounced his American citizenship, told him he was going to reveal secrets to the Russians. Okay. Something very strange going on, obviously. Okay, it's worth noting that Oswald gets the job within a few days before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Photos are examined by the very same company. Now, there's no way, folks, a real defector just returning from the Soviet Union would be given clearance in any sense to work in a company with top-secret U.S. military work going on. Hello! At any rate, the Soviets didn't bite because what they're trying to do is set Oswald up as this dangle, right? I mean, he's just back from the Soviet Union and he's still acting like he's a malcontent, doesn't like the states where he's living, is very pro-communist, very pro-Cuban, very pro-Soviet. And now he's working at this top secret place where, geez, you know, he could tell little secrets back to the Russians like he did before about Atsugi. So wouldn't the Russians want to say, hey, you want to come and work for us? Now, why would they want to say that? Well, first of all, they'd have a spy in a perfect top-secret location to reveal back to them what was going on, what was being spotted over Russia, what was being spotted over Cuba. Perfect guy for this. So the United States dangle him out as that. The other reason is he could also report back to the United States which contacts are in America that he's reporting to, in other words, Soviet spies. So there's some reasons why he'd be a great dangle to hang out there. Okay. The Soviets didn't bite. Now, everybody's heard about the backyard photos, right? Okay. So let me explain what those are. Now, March 31st, 1963, while still living in Dallas, Oswald's wife, Marina, takes the famous, quote-unquote, backyard photos of Oswald. Oswald's holding a rifle and wearing a pistol belt around his waist. He is also holding two leftist magazines in his hands. Many researchers argue over whether the photos are faked with Oswald's face cropped in. In a scene in the movie JFK, the movie by Oliver Stone, magnificent movie, the argument is made that the shadows from the sun don't align correctly, and there's a crop mark on the chin of Oswald's face. Okay, let me tell you a personal story, and you can find this story in the archives. 
Rick Nelson was on the show, and uh, I consider him to be uh, the Marina Oswald expert. Why is that? Because Rick Nelson was the first curator of the JFK Assassination Museum in Dallas. He's a personal friend with Marina Oswald. He rented a room off her and her husband while he was staying in Dallas for a year. They would spend countless hours, folks. I mean, what do you do at night, right? People sit around and they talk. So they'd sit around the kitchen table and talk. One of the subjects that came up was the backyard photos. Rick and her were talking about them. She told him she remembered Oswald insisted she take the photos, and she finally complied. I believe it. I don't think they're fake at all. I think they're real. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. Those photos could then be used to contribute to the ongoing sheep-dipping of Oswald as being pro-Castro and pro-Marxist. In other words, adding icing to the cake to make him look far more attractive to the Soviets. That's why I think those backyard photos were taken. It is also worth noting that the two leftist magazines that Oswald held in his hand, and very few realize this, were at odds with each other, and that it's improbable that a real pro-Marxist in the know would buy both magazines. See, both magazines were pro-communist, but they both hated each other's ideologies. I'm not talking about communism or anything like that. I'm talking about the, um, the details of it all. It would be kind of like being pro-democracy and holding up a Republican and a Democratic magazine at the same time. They're both at odds with each other. It's, so this is the deal with these uh, two magazines. Anybody in the know would buy one or the other, not both. A more logical scenario is that Oswald hailed the magazines believing it would add to the sheep dipping that he was hardcore pro-Marxist when he was really unaware that each magazine represented polar views. There was another incident that took place, the attempted assassination of General Walker. Now, only a few days later, on April 10th, 1963, Oswald makes a phony assassination attempt on General Edwin Walker. General Edwin Walker, November 10th, 1909 to October 31st, 1993. Now, Oswald shoots a single shot through a window into Walker's residence in Dallas. Walker was in a different room at the time and was uninjured. Walker had been a general in West Berlin when JFK fired him for insubordination. Yeah, Walker was a bit of a, a right-wing mm, wingnut. That's the best way to put it, in my opinion. It seems Walker was illegally ordering his troops on how to vote. <laughs> Walker was a right-wing fanatic and a bigot who rallied protesters in an attempt to stop black student James Meredith from entering the University of Mississippi in 1962. Bobby Kennedy, JFK's brother, who was attorney general at the time, thought Walker was so mentally unstable, he had him committed for psychiatric evaluation. Walker was released on a technicality five days later. Many researchers argue over if Oswald actually took the shot at Walker or if he was set up. 
Once again, I turned to Rick Nelson and what Marina told him. Indeed, Oswald took that shot. What's important is, again, with Oswald being credited for the Walker assassination attempt, it would convince, hopefully, the Soviets to look at him again as a credible person to do the spying for him. In other words, set him up as more sheep dipping. That is, taking a shot at a right-wing raging anti-communist like General Walker. Okay, here's where it gets really, really interesting and a little bit convoluted, but I'm going to walk you through it all so we understand this. David Ferry, Guy Bannister, and Lee Harvey Oswald. Here we go, folks. Only two weeks later, on April 24th, 1963, Oswald gets out of Dallas and drives to, of all places, New Orleans. It's commonly believed by most researchers that he then becomes involved with Guy Bannister and David Ferry, who are both involved with Operation Mongoose. Now, Operation Mongoose had military intelligence written all over it. It brought together military intelligence, the CIA, the Mafia, and anti-Castro Cubans, all under one operation. Exiles all working together for the same common goal to overthrow Castro and return to Cuba. At first glance, this may seem at odds with Oswald's sheep dipping, but then on May 26, 1963, Oswald officially opens, are you ready for this, the New Orleans chapter and office of the pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee, whose headquarters are in New York City. Let me just back up and explain Operation Mongoose for a second. The players in Operation Mongoose, the Mafia, anti-Castro Cubans, military intelligence, the CIA, all working together. Sounds odd, doesn't it? Especially when you throw the Mafia in there, and anti-Castro Cubans. Why would they want to go back in? Okay. CIA didn't like the fact that Castro was communist. Too close to shore. 70 miles between Florida and Cuba. Castro was trying to spread communism through Central America, Southern America, little too close for comfort. So the CIA wasn't a big fan. The mafia had been running up until the time of the Castro revolution, had been running all the casinos out of there. They were making tons of money. All of a sudden that's shut down by Castro. Well, they're not too happy. They want to get rid of Castro and go back in and run the casinos again. This is talking big, 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 big money, big money for the mafia. So that's why they were approached to get rid of Castro. Anti-Castro Cubans, well, once the Cuban Revolution took place, 1959, a lot of the business people that owned farms, that owned businesses, fled. They were afraid of Castro. He was coming in with a socially bent government, and he was nationalizing a lot of things. So they fled. They were in fear of their lives because they had been pro the regime beforehand, which was a very, very, very corrupt regime. But it was allowed to be there because it was very pro-America, pro-business, if you will. So they fled. They went to Florida, most of them. 
and they're called anti-Castro Cubans. They want to go back. They want to get their land back. They want to get their farms back. They want to get their businesses back. Most of all, they want to get both their money back and they want to get their power back. Many were connected to the government in many, many senses. So then you've got military intelligence setting it all up. Once again, they're not so thrilled the fact that Kennedy has said he's not going to go back into Cuba after the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's what one of the conditions was. Kennedy had a promise, Khrushchev, that he would never attack Cuba. So that's what Operation Mongoose was set up to more or less be a terrorist group. What we would call terrorism today. They went over to Cuba. They burned crops. Uh, they destroyed businesses. They murdered people. There was um, 24 assassination assassination attempts on Castro's life. Very very pissed off people. Okay, that's Operation Mongoose. Now let us return to Oswald in all this. So. At first glance, this may seem at odds with Oswald sheep dipping, but then on May 26, 1963, Oswald officially opens the New Orleans chapter and office of the Pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee, whose headquarters are not in New York. Oswald's office, as it turns out, is the same building, are you ready for this, as anti-Castro Guy Bannister mentioned above. And on top of that, Oswald is the New Orleans chapter's only member. Coincidence? So you've got Guy Bannister who's running guns out of his office. On one side of the street, his stairs go upstairs. <laughs> In the front of the building, there's more stairs that go right to the same floor, right? Right, same floor, just two different entrances. Think of one as a side entrance, the other one the front entrance. So Oswald rents a room, an office, in the same floor, the same building as Guy Bannister, only using the front entrance as an address instead of the side entrance. Now you got Guy Bannister who is anti-Castro was all get out. He's charged, he's an ex-FBI agent. He's asked by the FBI to set up false students into student organizations to pick out cash uh, to pick out um, pro communist agitators, if you will. He's also in charge of gun running to the resistance that's mounting in Castro's Cuba. So he's running guns to all these anti-Castro Cubans and everything else. And all of a sudden you've got this pro-communist guy. I mean, Guy Bannister is pretty much right to do <laughs> as much as Attila the Hun. He has no use for communists whatsoever. So the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald's renting a floor in that very same space, many people think Guy Bannister was also in cahoots trying to set up Oswald through this sheep dipping as well. There's a good possibility for that. We continue. Pro-Castro leaflets. On August 9th, 1963, Oswald is arrested for getting into a fist fight with Carlos Bringer. Bringer was the New Orleans head of an anti-Castro Cuban group called DRE. Oswald had gone to meet Bringer the day before the fight and the arrest. The next day, Oswald was on a New Orleans street handing out 
pro-Castro leaflets. Remember, Bringer is anti-Castro to passers-by. Obviously, trying to make himself look like he's pro-communist. Again, part of that sheep-dipping to make him look attractive to the Soviet Union, who may, they were hoping, approach him to become a spy. And then he could become a double agent. Now, all of a sudden, Bringer miraculously, coincidentally shows up and the fight ensues. Now, the police say the whole incident looked completely staged. Okay, next ring air challenge. So, you know, it, it could be this. This is my speculation. It may not be accurate, but this is my speculation on it. So you've got this pro-Castro guy, Oswald, handing out these papers. You've got this anti-Castro Cuban. Now, the Castro regime would know about this anti-Castro Cuban, Bringer, for sure. They had spies everywhere in New Orleans and elsewhere. There was lots and lots of double agents handing information back to Castro because a lot of them had family still back in Cuba. So to make things easier on their family, well, you give them a little bit of information. So Bringer shows up, starts a fight with Lee Harvey Oswald. Again, in my opinion, it makes it look more advantageous if Oswald looks like he's pro-communist. And this is a good way to do it, actually getting in some physical violence. The other thing is when there's a fight on a street, the press show up. Well, the press were, were there anyways before that. They had already been called before the fight. Again, mm -hmm. <laughs> a little curious. So this thing ends up on the news, right? So all of a sudden he's in the news as this pro-Castro guy, pro-communist guy, Lee Harvey Oswald. The next thing that happens is Bringier, anti-Castro, challenges Oswald to a live broadcast debate. The auspice being Bringier representing the anti-Castro perspective and Oswald representing the pro-Castro perspective. The debate was broadcast live on a radio station called WDSU, August 21st, 1963, on a radio show called Latin Listening Post. Now, any pro-Castro spies or informants living in New Orleans would most certainly turn into this show to keep abreast of the pulse of the Cuban community in New Orleans. Of course they would. This is the gathering point. They would most certainly make note of the name and pro-Castro views of one Lee Harvey Oswald and pass his name along. This is how the U.S. intelligence does it, folks. This is how they sheep dip somebody to make them look like something they're not. U.S. intel would know this as well. Once again, this incident is just more fodder for the sheep dipping, which is almost complete. Next, we move to something called the trip to Mexico. Next, on December 23, 1963, came a trip to the Cuban embassy in Mexico, where Oswald would attempt to get a visa to allow him into Cuba. Again, there are various perspectives from various researchers as to if, in fact, this trip actually took place. And I would urge you all to seek those views out and perspectives. Some great researchers out there on it. And you can check them out at the, uh, the archives as well. So they looked to see if this 
trip actually took place, if the person representing himself at the Cuban embassy was even Oswald himself or an imposter. Many people think it was an imposter. Either way, the trip was unsuccessful and no visa was issued. Now, it's my belief Oswald did make the trip and returned back to Dallas very frustrated. He spent close to a year playing the part of a pro-Castro, pro-Cuban revolution activist. Perhaps, and this is my own perspective again, folks, in Oswald's and the U.S. Intel's mind, it would take one last defining stunt to salvage all the work they'd done and finally get Oswald pronounced a true blue pro-Castro Marxist and accepted into Cuba. It is into this scenario that President Kennedy's Dallas trip was announced. The JFK assassination and Lee Harvey Oswald. Again, miraculously, Oswald gets a job. Once again in Dallas, where does he get a job? At the Dallas, Texas School Book Depository, which is perhaps the best spot in the whole Kennedy-Dallas motorcade route for a sniper. He had applied to all kinds of places along the motorcade route for weeks because the motorcade route was noted, so he was looking for a spot. Marina had been staying with their children at their new friend's house, Ruth Payne, and Oswald was alone renting a room in a rooming house closer to work. That was Ruth Payne who got him this job at the Texas School Book Depository. Payne's sister, as it turns out, okay, Marina's staying at Ruth Payne's house. Payne's sister, Sylvia Hyde Hoke, was employed by guess who? The CIA. Yeah. Payne's mother also had a connection to DCIA, that's the director, CIA, Alan Dulles. Payne's sister, CIA. Payne's mother, direct connection to Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA. I don't think Oswald was getting the best spot along the motorcade route for an assassin. It was mere coincidence. November 21st, 1963, one day before, folks, one day before the assassination, Oswald spent his last and final night with his family at Marina's. Having opted not to stay at his rooming house under the auspices of getting curtains from Marina for his room. In the morning, he rises before Marina. He leaves $170, it's around $1,000 today, folks, and his wedding ring on the bureau. He asks a neighbor, Buell Wesley Fraser, who also works at the Texas School Book Depository, for a lift to work. Fraser notices Oswald has a brown paper package under Oswald's arm, which Oswald tells him contains curtain rods. Okay, November 22nd, 1963, Dealey Plaza, 12.30 p.m. JFK's limousine has just made that awkward turn onto Elm and is obviously relaxed and happy, smiling and waving to the well-wishers that line the sidewalk. Shots ring out and shatter the scene in six seconds. The future of the world has changed. The president has been mortally wounded. Dallas police officer Marion Baker rushes through the front door of the Texas School Book Depository and encounters manager Roy Truly. 
Baker believes that the shots had come from the grassy knoll, but as he was in closer proximity to the Texas School Book Depository, he decided to check there first. Both Officer Baker and Manager Truly ascend stairs and find Lee Harvey Oswald alone on the second floor. This is important. Alone on the second floor lunchroom, calmly drinking a Coke. They both state that no more than 90 seconds has passed since the last shot. Most researchers are adamant that if Oswald was on the sixth floor, 90 seconds would not be enough time to hide a rifle and then bolt down four flights of stairs to the second floor lunchroom. Author's dissension. First off, I do not, that's me by the way, <laughs> I do not now, nor have I ever believed folks, that Oswald shot JFK, or in fact, even targeted him. It is possible, however, that Oswald was asked to take a shot that day, but purposely missed the car. Perhaps the bullet that missed and caused the wound of James Tague. Maybe. It is my opinion, Oswald was then to disappear out of Dallas and hopefully into Cuba, having been given the credit as the person who shot at JFK, just like he had done with Walker. You know, more credibility that he's pro-Castro. Or maybe Oswald was told to target Connolly for the same reason. There's simply no way of knowing. I differ with most researchers on the next point as well, and I'm certain to catch hell for it. <laughs> it's nothing new for me, but here goes anyways. I do believe Oswald was on the sixth floor that day with a rifle, in my opinion. Getting down the stairs into the second floor lunchroom and having a Coke is possible in the time frame allotted. However, however, I think Oswald was stunned and dismayed when he saw Kennedy's head come apart. I believe he had no idea there were other shooters in Dealey Plaza that day to really assassinate the president. Hence, when he later stated to the press that he was just a patsy, he was telling the truth. He didn't know which way to play, still trying to hold on to his cover. I mean, they've been working on this thing for a long, long time. You don't want to let go of that right away because he doesn't know what's going on. That he had worked so long with U.S. Intel setting up, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Perhaps U.S. Intel was unaware of the other shooters as well, or maybe the anti-Castro Cubans, rogue CIA members, mafia got wind of the Oswald scenario and took advantage of it. Maybe. At any rate, Oswald calmly walks out the front door of the Texas School Book Depository. Now, does this sound like a guy who's trying to escape after just shooting the President of the United States? Calmly walks outside the front door of the Texas School Book Depository, doesn't jump into a car, doesn't jump into anything, grabs a bus. A bus. Just <laughs> coming along the street, a bus. That would take him back to the rooming house. Now, talk about a getaway vehicle. A bus. Hello? This is an important point, as it would seem to me, if someone was going to plan to kill the President of the United States, he would most certainly have a competent exit plan. It wouldn't include a bus. A more likely scenario is Oswald was probably in a fog as to what just happened. He exited the Texas School Book Depository not knowing which way to turn, or exactly what to do. His world had just been turned upside down. The bus appeared 
and he took it. However, I do believe there was a plan in place for Oswald to connect with an intel agent in the Texas movie theater after the shooting. So this is what kept Oswald moving and not freezing up. There was a plan in place, and he had to execute it. And that is exactly where Oswald headed, the Tippett assassination. Upon returning to his rooming house, Oswald grabs his coat and his handgun. If he did not have a prior rendezvous with someone in the Texas movie theater, Oswald probably would have stayed right there, I suspect. While he's in the room, oddly enough, a police car pulls up to the door and honks its horn. What is that about? Obviously, I think, a signal for Oswald to take notice. Whether or not this was a prearranged signal or a contingency plan for me is still uncertain. The police car leaves slowly, but I still believe it was a signal for something. Oswald leaves the rooming house and starts walking, perhaps thinking that he will be given a lift or instructions by who was ever in the police car. Uncertain what is happening, but sure that he must make his prearranged rendezvous at the Texas movie theater. He's got to carry out this plan. Along the route, it is alleged that around 1.15 p.m., President was shot 12.30. Oswald is questioned by Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett, September 18th, 1924, November 22nd, 1963. Tippett had spotted a man who resembled the description given over the police radio of a possible suspect in the JFK shooting. It is widely speculated that it may have been Tippett who honked his police car horn to signal Oswald. Whomever Tippett had stopped to question shoots and kills him. Around 1.30 p.m., there's no evidence that it was only Oswald. Around 1.30 p.m., Oswald arrives finally at the Texas Theater. Now, oddly enough, a shoe salesman, Johnny Brewer, notifies the police that he has seen a suspicious man entering the theater. Oswald is arrested by Dallas police inside the Texas School Book Depository, but not before he pulls his pistol and tries to shoot the arresting officer. Now, many people believe this is to be a defining moment that solidifies Oswald's guilt as the assassin of JFK in a last-ditch attempt to get away. Gotta remember, Oswald just, just turned 24 a few days before. He's a young guy. Personally, folks, I think he just snapped at that moment at the prospects of getting arrested and the whole year spent sheep dipping and the plan unraveling. Oswald simply lost it and lashed out. It's important to remember that Oswald had just turned 24. He was just a young man. A misnomer in this story is that Oswald was arrested for killing JFK when in fact the arrest was for killing of Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett's suspicion. It also worth noting, Oswald is found with a cereal box top ripped in half. Now, I got to tell you this, it was very common for those in the clandestine business to rip dollar bills in half. One connection would get half, the other connection would get the other half. If dollar bills weren't available, they would use things like cereal box tops. This method was used to get two unknowns 
confirmation that they were meeting with the correct person. At Oswald's rooming house, many, many rip bills are also found. Oswald obviously had a prearranged rendezvous with some unknown connection at the Texas theater. Perhaps the person that would take him to Cuba, maybe. At the Dallas police station, Oswald would later gain self-control and be composed while being interrogated by the police and being put on view for the media. It is in front of the media where he would calmly ask for legal assistance and state crisply he was just a patsy. Jack Ruby murders Lee Harvey Oswald. Coming to the end of it, folks. Sunday, November 24th, 1963. Three days after. Dallas Police Station, 11.21 a.m. Now, it may be surprising to learn that the very Dallas Police Station Oswald was being held at in Dealey Plaza was across the street from the Texas School Book Depository, where just 48 hours before President Kennedy had been slain. But the murder onslaught in Dealey Plaza was not quite yet over. Oswald is to be transferred to a more secure location and is brought out through Dealey Plaza Police Station basement to an awaiting car. Oswald securely handcuffed folks to two Dallas police homicide detectives, Jim Lavelle on his right and Elsie Groves on his left. Jack Ruby lunges forward. Now you got to remember, the press is all around here. You know, they're in a semicircle around Oswald. There's 70 police officers in the basement. Jack Ruby lunges forward. Now try and think of the Hinckley attempt on President Reagan, the way he lurched forward, despite all the, the precautions taken. Ruby lunges forward, shoots Oswald in the abdomen, one single shot from his 38 pistol. He silences Oswald forever, sending him to the grave, taking all his secrets about the goings-on of November 22, 1963, with him. Now, the whole scene, folks, is captured live on television. This was live coverage. Everybody was glued to their TV. A good analogy is when you witness the barbaric horror of the people leaping out of the windows of the Twin Towers live on television. Ruby would claim that he murdered Oswald to protect Jacqueline Kennedy from having to go through a trial about the murder of her husband. Both Ruby and the Warren Commission would declare that there was never any connection between Ruby and Oswald. Immediately, researchers find alarming connections between Ruby, Oswald, Ruby, mob, indicating a mob hit to silence the assassin and a government cover-up of the truth. Red flag. What's the first rule of an assassination, folks? Kill the assassin. So I remember when Ruby had these mafioso connections revealed, everybody thought Oswald, and rightly so, was silenced for a reason. That, my friends, is a brief overview of Lee Harvey Oswald. If you want to get the book, uh, please do. Um, I don't make any, any money off the book. Uh, I get less than two bucks a book. I think it's a dollar eighty a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's even less than that with the, with the ebook because the ebook itself is only seven. So I get seventy cents. <laughs> I get ten percent. <laughs>
<laughs> it cost me twenty three hundred bucks or twenty seven hundred bucks for the transcriptions. <laughs> so I'm not going to make any money off this book. Okay, I didn't do it for the money. You know that. The book is called JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. Now the most important part of this book is Ted Sorensen, who was my friend, who I started out mentioning in the first hour. Ted Sorensen confirms conspiracy, names names, uh, talks about Operation Mongoose, and it's his last interview before he passed away. I interviewed him September 18th, 2010. He passed away October 31st, 2010. And um, he was ready to unload, folks. And let me tell you, there's a lot of stories there that have never come to surface before. He told backroom stories about Camelot, and it was Camelot, and Jackie and the kids and uh, all kinds of incredible, incredible information there. Well worth the seven bucks to get. It's an historical document now because a lot of these people, like Ted Sorensen, have passed away. Mark Lane's in there in his own words, talking about rush to judgment and all these famous things that he did. He's passed away now. God bless him. God bless him, what a great guy. Uh, Sherry Feaster tragically passed away way too soon, just a few months ago. Crime scene investigator who has examined the Zapruder film, found a frontal shot. So now modern 21st century forensic science has caught up with the assassination finally, and it proves a frontal shot. What does a frontal shot mean, folks? Well, it means more than one shooter. What does more than one shooter mean? Conspiracy. Proven by science right there. So you've got her uh, last um, interview as well in this book. James Tagg has passed away, unfortunately. He was responsible for the magic bullet theory. Very quickly, the first Warren Commission was going to come out and said, okay, we got three shells that we found in the Texas School Book Depository, and we've got three wounds. We've got two wounds in President Kennedy and, and one wound in... Governor Connolly, great, we can account for the three shells. Uh -uh. All of a sudden, James Tague steps forward just before the Warren Commission report is going to come out and says, hey, how do you explain my wound? He was shot in the cheek. So now you got four wounds, three bullets. Uh-oh, <laughs> got a problem. Okay, so we know one bullet hit James Tague. We know one bullet was a kill shot in JFK's head. Front, back, wherever. We're not discussing that. We're talking about the amount of shots, okay? So that leaves one bullet for what? The second wound in Kennedy and all the wounds in Governor Connolly sitting in front of him. So what do they do? They have this bullet coming in JFK's back, coming, going upward, coming out of his throat. Never mind about the YouTube video that claims, you know, the guy that won the Emmy and all that stuff. Look at the size of JFK's neck. It's four feet long. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> he's distorted way, way, and JFK was leaning forward. Okay, so right there, it's just nonsense. They keep trying to prove this magic bullet thing would work. It was never even thought of uh, as an excuse until James Tain came forward. They were all set to go with the three bullets, and then, now they got to make up this magic bullet. And then it goes into Connolly breaking ribs, breaking his wrist. Connolly says he wasn't hit by the same bullet that took out JFK. And they find this bullet perfectly in pristine condition, not bent at all, no blood, no tissue on it. 
and they're trying to fend this off. And there's still people that say, oh, you know, the magic bullet's possible. Look, uh, the graphics show it and all this crap. Nonsense. See you soon. You take care.